Are you ready to dive into the world of energy and innovation? Then look no further. SPE's annual Technical Conference and Exhibition, or ATCE, is just around the corner. Get ready for an experience that will fuel your curiosity and ignite your passion for the energy industry. Don't miss out on this incredible event. So mark your calendars for October 16th through the 18th and join us in San Antonio, Texas to explore the evolving energy landscape with the industry's leading innovators. Visit ATCE.org to learn more. Welcome to the SPE Podcast, powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers. You're listening to the SPE Live pre-ATCE series, Generative AI, Value for the Energy Industry. The audio from this episode was previously recorded on August 23rd, 2023. And now your moderator, Shushma Ban. Welcome to this SPE Live pre-ATC series on Generative AI, Value for Energy Industry. My name is Sushma Ban. I'm the SPE Data Science and Engineering Analytics Technical Section Chair, and I will be your moderator today. Um, I'm also on the board of Icon Science and previously Chief Data Officer of Subsurface and Well at Shell. Uh, today's SPE Live will last 30 minutes. We encourage you to ask questions during the program. And before starting our conversation, I would like to invite you to attend the SPE's annual technical conference, ATC, October 16th to 18th in San Antonio, Texas, USA. And personally extend an invite to attend DSCA technical section dinner speaker session on October 16th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. During this dinner on generative AI's rapid advancements and how AI accelerates energy, we'll have four great speakers share their knowledge and experience. Karen Myers, Khalid El-Zamil, Heiko Clausen, and Amar El-Bakri. To register, please scan the QR code in the graphic. It's now my pleasure to introduce our guest. Uh, Mehdi Farr is a senior practice manager at AWS Energy and Utilities Professional Services with over 15 years of experience in leading machine learning and data analytics initiatives. Mehdi has a PhD in exploration geophysics from University of Houston with over 40 publications and over 10 patents related to upstream oil and gas machine learning. He has worked earlier at Halliburton as a principal scientist, and now Mehdi focuses on developing OSDU platform as well as AI ML, ML Ops, HPC solutions for AWS Energy customers. Feng Xiao is the technical project lead for ExxonMobil and is responsible for ideating, strategizing, and developing new data-driven technologies for unconventional development and production. Before his current role, Feng uh, led the development of uh, associated machine learning applications to improve productivity, reliability, and recovery for assets around the globe. He has authored 30 plus peer reviews and uh, Feng holds a PhD degree in petroleum engineering from Colorado School of Mines in high performance computing. Dr. Joshua Eckhart is chief architect at I2K Connect and an associate professor of computer science at Stanton University in Florida. He focuses on developing and deploying solutions involving natural language processing, large language models, and other uses of deep learning. 
Joshua has PhD in computer science with a focus on artificial intelligence from the Ohio State University. He currently leads efforts on DARPA funded project called Knowledge Management at Scale and Speed and serves as an associate editor of AI Magazine. Mehdi, Fang, Joshua, welcome to the SP Live. Thank you. Thanks. Now, let's begin our conversation. AI has been around for over five decades. And um, however, recently, you know, just last year, OpenAI energized this whole area with the release of ChatGPT. And generative AI is seen as a key lever for value creation in energy sector. Um, so let's explore different facets of this area. And I'm going to start with um, Mehdi first. Um, you have extensive past experience in oil and gas. You have worked for, you're working for a leading tech company. Does technology play a key role for uh, AI? You know, what's, what's um, propelling this AI momentum in your opinion? Are there specific application areas for energy sector that has most value and, and what's challenging um, that needs to be addressed? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Sushma, for the question. So uh, working for AWS for over uh, five years now, uh, I've been exposed to a lot of ideas and customer use cases around uh, uh, AI and sometimes generative AI, you know, more recently. And uh, uh, based on my past experience, I've seen like three, four main, main areas that uh, AI is helping customers. Uh, to accelerate their innovation and be more productive, right? And the good news is that everything that we have been doing uh, using different techniques other than generative AI can be combined with uh, with the power of generative AI to you know bring even more automation, right? So uh, some of these areas that I've seen, I'll, I can talk about those, give you some examples. The first one is uh, for increasing employee productivity especially with generative AI, right? As you know, especially in uh, upstream uh, oil and gas data lives in silos, it's very hard for scientists and engineers to get their hands on the data that they need to, be, to do their analysis, right? So with uh, using something uh, like generative AI, it's now very easy for customers to retrieve that information in a matter of seconds uh, instead of weeks that, you know, was the case before. And also there are other areas that uh, companies are seeing more productivity uh, using AI technologies. Uh, one example could be in processing seismic data, right? If you may know uh, to get seismic from the uh, acquisition stage to the final 3D image of Earth, it typically takes about five to six months uh, to do the whole process, right? But using deep learning models for seismic interpretation and seismic data processing. Now we are talking about uh, a fraction of that time, right? To get the same thing. As, and same applied for reservoir simulation, right? Sometimes a reservoir simulation job uh, can take more than a week to run. Uh, but using deep learning techniques, again, we are now able to bypass the uh, computationally expensive uh, uh, CFD simulations and get the same results uh, in the matter of minutes. The second area that I've seen uh, customers benefit from AI is uh, by reducing their operational costs. 
one big item there that comes to mind is uh, predictive maintenance. Uh, if you take like offshore uh, environment as an example, right? An incident uh, in an offshore setup could mean loss of about $20 million for each incident. So one of the use cases we have had uh, is uh, that, you know, a customer was trying to use reinforcement learning to find the optimal set points for artificial lift operations to reduce the amount of interventions, which means uh, loss of revenue. And um, also, uh, improving supply chain operation, right? Where uh, time series forecasting, which is again a deep learning approach, plays a huge role in uh, accelerating the supply chain process. And the third uh, area that I've seen uh, customers uh, use AI to be uh, more uh, productive, uh, productive and bring more safety to their uh, workers is. Uh, things like corrosion detection, right? Where uh, uh, some customers have used computer vision uh, to automate the inspection of uh, corrosion uh, process. And uh, again, if you take the offshore uh, environment as an example, it's very dangerous to send people over to do the uh, inspection visually. So uh, if you have a, a computer vision model mounted on a drone, you can automate the whole process without needing to send uh, people uh, to the site. And also uh, uh, another example is about uh, uh, detecting personal protective equipment. Uh, sometimes uh, workers are required for safety reasons to wear, for instance, hard hat or gloves or glasses. And using uh, computer vision techniques, you can kind of uh, make sure that uh, everybody's uh, following the protocols and uh, everybody's doing so. So these are just uh, some of the examples. If I'm happy to elaborate more if you have any questions. Great, Mehdi. Thanks. I think those are some uh, very excellent and uh, important areas. Um, let's further um, get some more insights from uh, Feng on this. Uh, so, Feng, what are your views about generative AI's role um, in the current business climate? And are AI's applications already valuable? I mean, is it seen as low-hanging fruit with more to come or is it just a hype and what particularly uh, is exciting about this arena for you both professionally and from um, SPA perspective? Uh, so first of all, uh, thank you Sujima for the, <coughs> the opportunity for us to uh, share our thoughts with the SPA audience. Uh, like Maddie mentioned, uh, there are already uh, lots of AI and uh, ML applications uh, in the energy industry. Uh, in Amsing, uh, where I have uh, my most experience uh, I have seen AI applications for uh, well placement, uh, well spacing, uh, completion design, artificial uh, optimization, uh, maybe mention this one, and abnormal event detection uh, during uh, operations. Um, AI workflows are uh, particularly useful in unconventional uh, because of uh, the unique, uh, unique nature the unconventional, a very complex uh, petrophysics, uh, geomechanics, and free flow. And on the other hand, uh, we have a high welcome and large amount of data that we can use uh, to create AI models. And recently we presented uh, at the SP conferences about how we use X, uh, AI uh, to create a physics-based cyber model or pure uh, data-driven model and combine both uh, to determine uh, optimum computing intensity and the well-spacing 
horizontally and vertically, uh, like in a cube, to uh, maximize the oil recovery. And what's more interesting in my view uh, in the paper uh, is how we incorporate uh, domain knowledge uh, in the feature engineering and the hyper tuning of that process of uh, machine learning workflow. Now, which we call um, physics informed machine learning or physics informed uh, uh, AI. Um, in a recent uh, uh, context of a new generative uh, AI like ChatGPT and New Jersey, uh, we may wonder uh, what more can we do. Um, Gen AI models are uh, very large uh, and more sophisticated, and they activate some uh, advanced capabilities, uh, able to achieve uh, like 80 percentile performance in exams like SAT and GRE. And, and the recent news uh, says uh, it can pass with a 3.3 GPA in freshman year at Harvard. So it's amazing. So building on our existing AI successes, uh, what more can we do with the Gen AI? Uh, with the Gen AI, uh, that is built for energy, for oil and gas and option. So uh, let's imagine a Gen AI model that has been uh, trained uh, on all the SP uh, papers uh, and, uh, and textbooks in engineering and geoscience. And such a Gen AI model could present some very exciting use cases. For example, if one moves to apply Will performance analysis on a gas well, uh, and this gene AI uh, may script a, a Python code in a few seconds uh, for the force hammer's equation and analyze the data and even produce visualization. Another example, uh, if one wants to build a uh, simulation model uh, like Intersect for resource simulation or a PEDEX Prosper for uh, well simulation, and this gene AI model uh, can search through the very, very large documentation of the software and provide uh, relevant suggestions uh, uh, specific to your simulation objective. So these are just examples of the day-to-day -day, uh, technical work we do in project design and operation supporting option. So with Gen AI, basically you will have uh, like engineering and geoscience uh, co-pilots, your junior uh, engineering intern or geoscience intern, right, uh, to augment your uh, capacity and capability. And in SPE, uh, with this AI, for energy initiative, uh, our goal is to improve uh, members' awareness and skills in the arena of AI, including Gen uh, AI, through uh, open competition and industry conference. I'm I'm so excited by the potential impact that uh, that that will make. Thank you, Fang. And again, um, you know, definitely, this is a very exciting and uh, key area where we see a um, lot of investments and uh, enthusiasm from business. Um, so let's let's um, go to Joshua and um, further explore this. You know, uh, Joshua, the success of generative AI is dependent on you know various types of data inputs. Um, the data quality, reliability is important, along with you know training data. So, would you share your thoughts on AI trends and data significance for um, AI's success? Can AI outcomes be trusted by business? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, it is one of the most important questions, I think. Uh, data quality is is the most important feature of uh, training and using uh, generative AI, specifically a large language model. So you want to basically get the highest quality input for training that you can manage. You know, so if you have a silo, you have a corpus, do everything you can to get clean output from that. And I know there are lots of different kinds of file types beyond the typical PDF, there's oil and gas specific file types, so you want to be able to handle those. Um, we've seen like with Falcon, uh, that particular model, it used what's called refined web, which was a web crawl 
corpus, you know, crawling the web for data. And then it was refined to remove duplication, to remove, um, you know, bad text and stuff like that. And that helped produce a better model. So that's on the input side. On the uh, use side, you want, again, very high quality sources so that you can uh, seed the large language model with content from your silos that allows you to ask questions or get insights about your own content. Uh, so I, I think a lot of us have seen this by now that you can kind of provide the language model some context, like I wanna answer the question about these particular sources and how those sources are found, that's gonna be like a whole pipeline that's gonna search your corpus. You also wanna involve human oversight of the responses. So just like when you have a knowledge management system or like a community uh, knowledge system where people are posting responses or questions, you want somebody that's kind of looking at this stuff to kind of clean it up or consolidate. And same thing with the outputs from large language models. You want people to be looking at this. I think an important thing to remember with all this is these models, while they seem so reasonable and sophisticated and they can argue their, their way to con convince you of anything, they don't actually have a way of evaluating if they're doing a, an accurate job, like if they're actually producing accurate responses about the world. Right, so they don't have any connection to the world. They're only They're only looking at their own training set in a sense. They're only looking at the probabilities of things they've been trained on. So they can't tell if the next word that they're producing is actually an accurate word about the world or just likely given the training that they've seen. So the pipeline really matters. Independent of the large language model, it's the stuff you feed in, not only during training, but during use. And it's the way you use the response that's gonna make this thing more accurate and therefore more trusted. I think you need to teach staff to not just blindly trust whatever it says. Um, and it's kind of like an information literacy. Maybe it's gonna be in some AI literacy. How do we make sense of the outputs? And overall, I think just the general story is trust is earned. Trust in these models is earned. You can't just mandate it. So we're gonna to have to see in, it, in their use, in practice, are we finding that we trust them? Yeah, excellent. I, I, I think you have hit um, hit the right points that that trust has to be earned, and a lot of it depends on you know the kind of data that's been fed in, and its accessibility and reliability is very key. I've, I've seen that was a key element that we uh, focused on in Shell, and also uh, in my work with um, the current uh, icon where we bring the data, and that's used by you know um, the engineers and geoscientists because that is kind of the foundation of decision-making and, and going forward. Um, I quickly want to follow up uh, with uh, Feng about, you know, should business strategy include AI focus? Uh, uh, my, uh, my answer is actually yes, uh, uh, because a focus will uh, help us figure out uh, how to use AI, uh, generative AI to transform our organization's abilities in four areas in my view, uh, data retrieval and employee training, uh, technology development and uh, and the workflow automation. So uh, take SBE organization, for example, as a publisher, a specific strategic question uh, we may ask ourselves is, should we anticipate a time uh, when, uh, when members prefer using AI power tools uh, to find answers directly instead of uh, downloading uh, papers individually and reading them uh, page by page? So this is pretty much like a, a Bing search uh, versus traditional search engine question. So in fact, this data retrieval application is a low-hanging fruit for any, any company operating or service provider, any company. 
that has a large internal database built by their employees over decades of time. So we should include AI focus in this strategy and, and figure out high-value add use cases. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Feng. And again, um, you know, strategy has to, you know, recognize AI as a big lever. The whole area of digitalization um, relies on this. Um, I, I would remind the audience to uh, please share your uh, questions. Uh, we would like to uh, have our speakers address any of those. Um, and, and let me also uh, follow up with a shot, another quick question to Mary, you know, about technology readiness. Can business change from its uh, current ways to adopting AI more rapidly? Yes, absolutely. There are certain things that need to be in place, especially when we are talking about something like generative AI and the problems, potential problems that it has, hallucination and returning inaccurate information. The, the way to kind of uh, uh, take care of those issues and make sure that it's really returning useful information for companies is to have uh, your uh, data uh, platform in place where you have ingested all of your information because those generic models that are available today through the internet, they have been uh, trained on generic uh, in, uh, information from internet, right? They haven't seen uh, companies' private information and companies want want those models to work for their specific uh, projects and use cases, right? And the way to do it is uh, uh, through a process called uh, fine-tuning, where we need to ingest and, you know, extract the information from, from documents. Sometimes uh, they could be embedded in some images, uh, spreadsheets, PowerPoints even, we have seen uh, with some customers, right? So it's important to be able to extract all of, all of those properly in, in the right order and uh, curate, curate those uh, uh, information and feed it uh, to the fine tuning process. So I think uh, when talking about uh, generative AI, that's the most important thing. And you know, the currently the only solution to kind of make sure that uh, those models return relevant information and are not just, uh, you know, creating some uh, general uh, text from from the internet, right? So I think, for, to me, that that would be the biggest point. Great, thanks for that, Mehdi. Uh, we have a question from LinkedIn by George uh, Rosilialis: um, Is explainable AI? in which the input to an answer can be solved be the most applicable computing process for industry. So Joshua, you want to start with that and everybody can chime in. Yeah, thanks. I was thinking about this um, issue of explainability. So explainability, it's also known as XAI. It's not particularly new because it's been around since neural nets or um, symbolic or not symbolic, uh, you know, like semantic processing. Um, the reason it's been around since then is because neural nets have this kind of intrinsic property that you can't really read why it's doing what it's doing from the internal components. It's like looking at your own brain neurons. You can't just monitor some of them and say, this is what they're thinking about. Or maybe not yet anyway. <laughs> I guess they're working on that. So I was at the uh, a grocery store recently and I was using, I brought all my items to this um, checkout and it used computer vision to look at the items. I just put them on the table. I noticed that I had then looked at the uh, little display to see that it had all the correct items and it did. And so I said, okay, let's pay for it and I'm out. So it's very quick. AI was a great use case in that situation. But I noticed 
I validated, like I verified the AI's responses or its conclusions by looking at the list. And that was really convenient, right? So if it wasn't right, I would have probably just scanned all the items myself and just said, forget this thing. So in that sense, I didn't need an explanation because I could quickly identify it was doing the right thing. And so when people are using like a large language model and it gets a response and they know that response makes perfect sense, they move on. If they don't know if it makes sense because they don't actually have like enough knowledge to really diagnose if that answer is correct or not, that's where you need explanation. And so explanation still is important. It's not essential for every situation. If you can find situations where AI is used and it is obvious when the answer is right or wrong, uh, it can simply be an efficiency gain. But if it's used for situations where people don't have the ability to know if it's right or wrong in all cases, that's where the explanation comes in. And we're working on techniques. These models today are better at it because they can give an English explanation, but there's still a lot of work to be done there. Great. Um, thanks. We have another question about um, the validation strategy after fine-tuning from Pushpesh. Um, is there any research on general framework for validation? Um, and if either one of you want to comment on that. So maybe just a few so the question is, uh, what would you suggest as a good validation strategy for fine tuning after fine tuning? And is there a general standard framework? Well, there are certainly measures. Um, a lot of these measures are related to the particular data sets that are used. So one can measure how well you match a data set. And there's, you know, like a wide range of these and they're well published and the point of that is to know if this model is better than that model so there's like leaderboards but as far as your organization you're probably going to have a particular kind of use case so in some sense there's not much replacement for the human feedback you really need to know if this is working for people and you need to know not just when you're training this thing but what after you've deployed it because the world's going to change right terms come and go uh used like kind of documents in your corpus are going to be different over time. So you want to continually get feedback. Maybe it's just thumbs up, thumbs down, but you need to get feedback if this is still working. Uh, there's another technique that people use, which is to have a another fancy language model, say like GPT, check the answers of your internal model. So uh, can it make sense of what your model produced as its answers? And so it's like, language models evaluating language models, and that works pretty well, but it's really not the same as human feedback. So I think you always need to have instrumentation to see if the thing you've deployed is still working. Thanks. We have um, another question. I'll quickly um, put it on from Ahmed A. Um, how can you deal with balance and data sets used for training as breakdowns are uh, infrequent and unique? Would this not always take longer? So. All of you can chip in or, you know, see um, if there's any thoughts on the training data. Mehdi, you want to comment on it? So, yes, based on our experience, you know, even a tiny amount of data that you add to the fine-tuning process, it helps really a lot, right? And uh, unfortunately, the, the way to kind of uh, evaluate the amount of improvement, and Joshua talked about some of those aspects, uh, to me, uh, 
like A-B testing could be a very good solution for that, where you have a pool of users and then they uh, give you feedback on the, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. And that that could be one way to kind of uh, determine when, when uh, you know, you have enough data that uh, you have used for your fine-tuning process. And after some point, you can, you know, uh, be confident that you have a very relevant and updated model. So th that's, uh, you know, uh, I think a feasible solution for me, like A-B testing. Great. And again, this is this is such an exciting topic. There's there's so much to be um, discussed and thought. But let's let's talk about the challenges and risks. And I would like each one of you to give um, a little thought about, you know, um, how should AI be effectively managed? You know, any elements of legal, regulatory or uh, other safeguards? If you would uh, give your um, concluding so, um, thoughts. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just a uh, point out on the data privacy, uh, uh, because there might be a risk that employees uh, could accidentally share intellectual properties and classify information. An example of this is uh, a Samsung ChatGPT database. Um, so now in ChatGPT, we can choose to save or not to save our child history, but I believe uh, organizations maybe still hesitate to send their data to server that is beyond their, uh, their direct control. Um, it's a in my view, it's just a matter of time to have a more secure AI uh, services or enterprise uh, applications in the near future. I have something to add as well. Um, some wisdom I've received over time is when you're putting a new system out there and trying to get people to adopt it, they're suddenly going to think the system they already have is three times as good as it uh, as it, they thought yesterday and the new system is three times as worse as what you know you're con trying to convince them of so you basically need an order of magnitude improvement to get people to adopt something so you want to find ways to work this change into their workflow the other thing to consider is the cost of human labor like in a sense ethical costs as well as actual costs so if you're asking people to, to probably to uh, produce part of your training set which could be an extensive job, but also evaluate its responses. You want to work that in in a way that's kind of natural and not give people like the extremely tedious task of generating large training sets. So if you can make it part of the workflow where they're evaluating these systems and even generating new input for the next training round, that would be ideal. We are almost done with time, so I'm I'm just going to conclude and say, um, you know, Mehdi, Feng, Joshua, thank you all so much for your insights and to our audience thank you for joining us today we'll see you next time thank you so much Sushma. thanks for listening to the spe podcast for more content visit the spe energy stream the industry's digital pulse at streaming.spe.org if you enjoyed today's show don't forget to subscribe and review join us next time on the spe podcast